Welkom by SL Gemeente Media. Well, I think you noticed the uh, the new member of the worship team today. Uh, it was a uh, hop along there, and uh, or or maybe fuzzy feet. I, I don't know. It, uh, uh, you know, we were trading stories earlier today, and you know, and it, it just kind of shows you the difference between the real men of South Africa and me. Uh, and that uh, you know, he's, he broke his foot snowboarding. You know, and I, I was sharing him the story about how I broke my ankle falling downstairs. And somehow it just didn't really compute to me afterwards, you know. That's a manly way to break your foot. Falling downstairs, I mean, that's, you know, that's for sissies. What, what is this? You know, so, way to go, man. Oh, manly men. Got to have those injuries. You know, sport's not really any fun unless you have uh, really, really good injuries. Isn't that right? I mean, that's what rugby is all about. I didn't I ever tell you the story about the... Uh, the man that, uh, it was uh, All Blacks and, uh, oh, what's that? South, uh, Springboks, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they were in, uh, you know, the, the World Cup. And uh, this guy just barely, he barely got, and got a seat, you know, huge stadium. He's up right at the top there. And he notices that right down by the pitch, there's this old guy with an empty seat next to him. And he thought, why is there an empty seat in the World Cup final with, with the spring box and the All Blacks. I cannot believe this. And he, you notice he had a spring box, you know, outfit on. And he was a spring box fan himself. Of course, you know, all real rugby fans are. And, uh, and, and so he, he, he made his way down and he got through the security patrols and things like that. And finally came down to the guy and, and sheepishly said, excuse me, sir, can, can, is anyone sitting there? And the man said, no, no, uh, that was for my wife. Oh, well, where is she? Well, She's dead. Oh, I'm so sorry. I mean, because older guy, he said, wow, you must have been married for a while. I said, yeah, we were married uh, 56 years. And uh, uh, it's really heartbreaking. And we, we had planned this uh, with, with the faith that the Springboks were going to get in the final this, 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 this time around. And, uh, and we knew that they were going to win. And, and, then, and then she died. And I said, oh, man, that's heartbreaking. That is just so terrible. I'm just, I, I'm surprised that you didn't have any other family members that would want to come with you. He said, yeah, well, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so that's a, that's a real South African man, right? Right? Am I right? Okay, I'm right. I'm right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, and we're going to read the first uh, number of verses. Paul's writing here, and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears... Then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, I want to tell you about somebody that you've probably never heard of, uh, a guy named uh, Joshua Abraham Norton. Uh, yet uh, you, you haven't heard of him, but you probably have heard of the nation over which uh, he was the self-proclaimed emperor, that is, the United States. In fact, many of you probably don't realize that the United States had, had an emperor. Uh, but yes, indeed, his name was uh, Joshua Abraham Norton. Uh, uh, he was often referred to as Emperor Norton I. Uh, now, we have a connection here together, uh, and we're in London. Uh, you guys are South Africans. I'm an American. Well, Joshua Abraham Norton happened to be born in London, and uh, when he was quite young, uh, he moved with his parents to South Africa and lived uh, a, a lot of his young adult life there in South Africa. His father was quite a wealthy uh, merchant, and so when his father finally died, this is back in the 1800s, uh, he left uh, Joshua his estate, uh, and uh, that totaled the sum of about $40,000, which was quite a significant amount of money in those days. And so he had heard about the things that were happening in the United States. So Joshua Abraham Norton decided to move to the United States and ended up in San Francisco, uh, where he uh, more than quadrupled his money, or even more than that, six times, I don't know what, sextupled, what is that? Uh, and uh, had a fortune, amassed a fortune of, of well over $250,000, which again was quite a, quite a large sum in the 1800s, uh, which he then proceeded to lose uh, on rice speculation. It was during the time when uh, there was a famine in China, and so the Chinese stopped the exporting of rice, and uh, there was some rice coming up from Peru, so he decided to buy a whole shipload of it. He heard that there was a shipment thinking he would uh, control the rice market, uh, when, uh, and he made the big purchase. But not only was there one shipload, but there turned out to be four shiploads of rice, uh, which caused the, the price of rice to tank quite considerably. And uh, Joshua Norton lost his entire fortune uh, on his rice speculation. Then he vanished for a few years. Uh, nobody saw him or heard from him or anything like that. And then he turned back up in San Francisco. And, and don't think that this is weird because uh, uh, California is known as the land of fruits, flakes, and nuts. 
Uh, and uh, that's uh, kind of how he came out of here. And he might have been the pioneer of all of this. But he turned back up in San Francisco and declared himself emperor of these United States. Uh, went on to do things like abolish the Congress, uh, for which many people were happy, but the Congress did not pay any attention to him. Uh, he also uh, abolished the Republican and the Democratic parties in the United States. Uh, again, tragically, they didn't pay any attention to him. Uh, he, uh, had, uh, he declared that the, the Protestants and the Catholics should together ordain him as the emperor of the United States. Uh, they didn't listen to him. Uh, but uh, over the years, while he reigned as the emperor of these United States, uh, the people of San Francisco uh, came to love him quite dearly. In fact, he would go around San Francisco. He was given uh, an old army uniform that had gold epaulets on the side, and he'd wear that. He had a beaver skin cap uh, with a peacock feather and a rosette uh, on the cap. He would often walk around with a cane or an umbrella, uh, and, uh, and the people would defer to him. Uh, he was actually a penniless pauper, but uh, he always ate in the best restaurants uh, because the people would uh, allow him to come in and, and have their food in, in their restaurants and, and serve him up. And, and many of the restaurants then would display a sign uh, by uh, the appointment of Emperor Norton I. Uh, he had many groundbreaking ideas. He, uh, he suggested that there should be a League of Nations and the world finally caught up to him uh, about 70 years later when they started to form the United Nations. Uh, he also suggested that there should be a suspension bridge that connected uh, the two sides of San Francisco Bay in a tunnel, uh, which uh, some 60, 70 years later uh, actually came into being. And, and uh, the tunnel is actually dedicated to him as a plaque uh, to his honor on the outside. And he walked around uh, San Francisco and uh, police and others would defer to him. Uh, one day, uh, one of the uh, policemen made the tragic mistake of deciding to arrest him as a lunatic. Because after all, I mean, if I said I was the emperor of England, uh, you would probably look at me a little scant as well. And uh, he, he did so, and there was such an outcry in the papers that uh, the police commissioner released uh, uh, Norton I... And, uh, uh, and Norton I then promptly gave a pardon, uh, uh, an emperor pardon, to the police officer who happened to arrest him. And uh, this went on for quite a number of years, probably uh, well over 30 years or so from the time he first declared himself emperor of these United States. And then finally, uh, one day, tragically, he was on his way to give a lecture at, uh, I think it was the Royal Academy of Arts and Sciences uh, in uh, San Francisco at the time, when uh, he collapsed on a street corner and uh, died before they could bring in, uh, uh, get a carriage to take him to the hospital. Uh, the next day as they uh, were going to do his funeral, uh, the word has it that the streets were lined with 30,000 people who came out to greet uh, Emperor Norton I of these United States. Uh, thankfully, he was the first emperor of the United States and the last emperor of the United States. But it's really extraordinary, and it's a true story. You can, you can Google him. Uh, you, uh, you just say United States Emperor, Google that. You'll find out a lot about his, uh, his life. Uh, he was the subject of, of a lot of stories. A lot of writers were captivated by him, uh, and very interesting guy. But the thing is, with him, 
Everybody knew. You know, the only way you can get away with something like that is if everybody else who is in on it goes along with it. Now, he dressed like the emperor. He talked like the emperor. He made decrees as an emperor would make decrees. But obviously, uh, none of his decrees uh, were acknowledged. Uh, nobody really acknowledged him as the emperor. And, uh, and San Francisco, I guess, looked at him uh, in, in a way that one might look at their, at their pet. Because nobody really affirmed this man as the emperor because he was just a man. Just a man. And it turned out that he was a, a penniless pauper. He had very little after he died. When they opened up his room, it was just a one small room with very, very few possessions. But as Christians, we're different. We don't look like anything really that special. Okay, I'm talking about myself now. So if you think you look special, then that's fine. But most of us, we don't look regal. We don't look royal. Uh, We don't go about in uh, wearing crowns or beaver skin hats uh, or uh, beautiful blue jackets with gold epaulets. We don't uh, live our lives trying to make royal decrees. Uh, We don't walk down the streets waving at people. Uh, We don't talk about ourselves in the plural as we think that we should go to the supermarket today, don't we? Uh, We don't do these kinds of things. And yet, unlike Emperor Norton, we really are children of the king. We really are royalty. We really are children of God. And what we are on the inside, what we are in reality, is not about what we look like. It's not about how we dress. It's not about the language we speak or how we carry ourselves or the proclamations that we make. It's all about what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, there was a profound transformation that happened in your life. You went from being a sinner who deserved the wrath of God to becoming a saint, a holy one, a child of God who is a full uh, uh, heir according to the promise in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the reality that describes who you really are. If we would take away all the clothes, and please don't, but if we would take away all the clothes and all the wrappings and all the trappings and everything like that, and we could get down to the very essence of our being, the very fundamental thing that made us who we are, that will live on, the very essence of that being has been infused with the glory of God in Jesus Christ so that we are now children of God. We are now princes and princesses. We are now sons of God. We are now the bride of Christ. We are now saints. We are now holy. And so on and so on and so on. And this is the fundamental thing that defines us. This reality. This dynamic about your identity. And this is so important 
Because if you are to live your life as a, a child of God, if you're lived to live your life as a Christian effectively with impact, the only way you can do it is if you understand who you are. You can only do it if you understand who you are. If you understand your real identity. It, not, it will never come about by trying hard. It will never come about by working at it. It will never come about by setting your mind to it. It can only come about by recognizing your fundamental identity in Jesus Christ. And affirming that and embracing that. And that's what Paul is telling us today. He's talking about clothes in the section of this passage that we're going to use today. And he tells us to put on some things. To put on some clothes. But the only way that we can put on these clothes is, as he says, as God's chosen ones. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We are God's chosen ones. God didn't look down at you and say, oh, well, okay, I don't have anybody else to respond, so I I guess I'll take you. You'll do in a pinch. He didn't look down at us and say, well, you know, I'm mostly disappointed with you, but, uh, uh, well, might as well. I've got a little bit of room in the back corner of heaven for you. He looked down and he chose you. He chose you for himself. And he didn't look down with any kind of uh, uh, illusions about who you are. You know, it's one of the great things. God never gets disillusioned with us. You know that. Because he never had any illusions about us in the first place. You don't, it, it, there's never a time when you sin and God goes, Oh, golly, why did he do that? Well, I'm sorry, you're out. Uh, that's so surprising to me. I am utterly shocked by this, by your sin. Just get out. Just get out. I just, he died for all of that. Jesus paid the price for all of that. So we put on, as God's chosen ones, who are holy. You're not just becoming holy, but you actually are holy. You are set apart for God. You are holy. And you don't have to work to earn God's love. You are, right now, beloved by God. Doesn't mean He loves everything you do. Doesn't mean He loves everything you say. But he loves you. He loves you. Well, oftentimes God's looking down at us kind of like, like little kids, because that's what we are. And if you ever think you're anything more than a little kid, uh, you, you're deluding yourself. Uh, he looks down at us like we do a, a little children. Now, when your kids are learning to walk, how many times have you ever spanked your child for falling while he was learning to walk? I hope none of you ever have. Uh, We don't discipline our children for making the mistakes that we expect children to make. Now, sometimes we have to discipline them when they're rebellious, when they're intentionally disobedient, and so on and so forth. That's appropriate. But God looks at us, and He loves us. He loves us in spite of all of our mistakes and our brokenness and all of that stuff. And so Paul is telling us here, in the very first part of this this third passage that we've been looking at, he's telling us here that you need to understand that you are God's chosen one, holy and loved, in order to put these things on. And 
If you understand yourself as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, then it becomes quite natural for you to put things on. Now, I don't think the queen ever has to ask herself, well, is it appropriate for me to put this crown on my head? Oh, I don't know. No, she just does it naturally. Uh, I don't think she has to think about uh, how to wave her hand or how to talk to people, how to interact with people. It flows naturally from a, a realistic understanding of who she is. And in the same way, our life in Christ will flow naturally from a realistic understanding of who we are. And that's what Paul has trying, been trying to reinforce for us. And that the first week on Resurrection Sunday, we saw how we're animated with the resurrection life of Christ. And because of that, we need to orient our minds and our wills toward Jesus Christ, who was crucified and who rose from the dead. And if we orient ourselves toward God, we will naturally move in that direction. And then last week we were talking about the things that we need to put to death in us and that we need to not give it any of our mind, our will, and our emotions. And we discovered with that as well that the key to putting anything to death in our lives is to keep the focus in on Jesus Christ, to remember that Christ is all and is in all, that Christ is everything, Jesus is everything. And when we remember that Jesus is everything and keep our focus on that, we'll begin naturally not to want to do those things that we have done so often in the past. And now this week, Paul is talking to us about the things that we do need to do, the way that we do need to live our lives as Christians. And frankly, the world needs to see people who are genuinely living as Christians in the marketplace, at the universities, in the hospitals, in the schools, uh, on the streets, uh, everywhere. The world is hungering, longing for Christians who will really dress up like Christians. When they see them, they will know them. And we will be influencers because people see us and people know us. We can be influencers. We don't even have to mention the name of Christ. But if we're living Christ, if we are Christ to people, they will see, they will know, and they will be influenced by that. And then we will have opportunities to tell them about Jesus, which we do need to tell about Jesus. And so what are these dynamics? What are the clothes that we need to put on as Christians? How do we need to clothe ourselves as God's chosen people who are holy and deeply, deeply loved? Well, Paul tells us here a few things. He says, uh, uh, okay, put on then some things. Compassionate hearts. Hearts that, that are merciful. Hearts that seek to understand how people feel. Now, one of the most repulsive things that I've seen in, in quite a long time is, frankly, the, the parties, the street parties that have been there uh, around um, Margaret Thatcher's death. Just so incredibly tasteless. Now, regardless of what you think about her, regardless of whether you like her, her, her uh, policies or not, you know, to, to celebrate in such an ostentatious way is just really disgusting. There's no sense of a compassionate heart there. No sense at all. And God's saying, you know, Christians, we've we got to have compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Hearts that look on others with mercy and understanding. And he says, also, you need to have kindness. 
need to know how to treat people well, treat people appropriately, show respect to people. There also needs to be humility. You need to make yourself low. Oh, at City Temple, one of the things that we do and one of the tests that are, are almost always there for leadership is whether or not you're willing to do dishes. Uh, and if you're not willing to do dishes, then I'm not sure how keen I am on having you do anything in ministry in the life of the church. Uh, and if you're willing to do dishes, that doesn't mean you can do other ministry. But boy, it's a good pathway because you demonstrate the fact that you're humble, that you're willing to make yourself low, that you're willing to serve other people. And that's what Christians do. We don't have to shout our names. We don't have to uh, advertise ourselves. And then there's also this meekness. And by meekness, it sounds very similar to humility, but what it's talking about here is gentleness. You know, not forcing ourselves on other people. Not forcing our way, but being gentle, being gentle, gentle and humble. And then he says uh, also, whoops, I lost my place there, and patience. That's everybody's favorite. By the way, never pray for patience. I was with a, a meeting of uh, ministers here about a week or so ago. And the guy was saying, you know, I, I really think I need patience. We were, we're going to pray for each other. He said, I really need patience. And I said, I won't pray for your patience. He says, what are you talking about? You won't pray for patience. Well, the Bible says that tribulation works patience. So if you pray for patience, you're praying for, praying for tribulation. So how many of you parents, I mean, this is really, really dumb parents, say, oh God, give me more patience with my children. You're saying, God, make my children really annoying and disobedient to me so that I have to resist killing them. Don't do that. Just don't pray that way. You know, if it comes, it comes. You know, let the Holy Spirit produce it in you. But don't go after it. You know, that's going after trouble. You know, you get rid of that. But, but you're going to put it on. You're going to put on patience. You're, you'll wear it like your clothes there. And then he says, bearing with one another. That's enduring each other. You know, if, if, if you have somebody in this church that is really annoying you, you know, that, that really maybe has said something that's offended you. Or uh, you just don't like them very much. You don't like the way they talk or the way they act or the way they dress, whatever it is. God did that on purpose. He really did. He puts us together in the church. We think we come together in the church and everything's supposed to be good and pleasant. And we're all harmonious and all getting along all the time and all agreeing. And, oh, we just love each other. I just love you. I just love you. Oh, you just love you. That's not a very manly South African way to do it. It's like, I love you, man. Oh, oh, oh. Let's go play some rugby. Ah. Uh, but that's not, that's not the way it is. Church is a place of real people. We make mistakes. We do things that annoy each other. And God does that on purpose so we'll learn patience, so we'll develop character and so, so on and so forth. So we need to bear with one another, put up with one another, tolerate one another, hang in there with each other. That's what he's saying here. And if you have a complaint against another one, get over it. That's kind of what he says there. If you have some kind of complaint, if, if somebody's done something, offended you, something like that, then just give them some grace. It says here, it uses the word forgive. But in the Bible, there's two dominant words that are translated as forgive in the New Testament. Uh, one is the word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. 
And that word means to release something, just to let it go. And that word is talking about what we do uh, when we forgive and uh, that transaction between us and God. Where we say, okay, God, I'll just release this to you uh, and I'm not going to bring it back up and uh, I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to seek revenge for the person. I'm, I'm just releasing this to you, God. Then there's another word, which is the word that Paul uses here and also in Ephesians, which means actually to give grace, to give grace. The first word forgive is primarily between us and God. The second word is primarily between us and another person, but it's modeled on what God has done for us. And grace is undeserved favor. It's undeserved kindness. And so Paul says here, bear with one another. If you've got a complaint, forgive. Give that person grace. Give that person grace. Give them an extra measure of understanding. Give them an extra measure of patience. Give them grace. Give them grace. And keep on giving grace. Don't stop giving grace. As the Lord has given grace to you, you also must give grace to other people. And God's grace is pretty incredible. I mean, God is constantly giving us grace. We make mistake after mistake after mistake. And God says, I'm giving grace. I'm giving grace. Paul says that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So even when we as God's children commit sins, when we do things that are really wrong or that come out of our brokenness, God still gives us grace. He gives us grace because Jesus has paid for it all. Jesus has paid for every sin you would ever commit. And so that's the kind of grace that God has given you. And he says, now you need to give grace to other people. And it's really extraordinary because no other religion has this concept in it. Hindus don't give grace. Muslims certainly don't give grace. Jews are not taught to give grace. And the Torah says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's really only in Jesus Christ that we can understand this amazing concept of grace and understand how important it is for us to give grace to one another. And as we give grace to people, and by the way, all of these things are true not only for people in the church as you're interacting with them, but they're especially true for people in the marketplace. When you go to work tomorrow, as you interact with them. So as you give grace to people, and as you give them more and more and more grace... It's a really astounding thing because the world doesn't understand it. People around us don't understand it. And that's, and that's the, the call there. As the Lord has given grace to you, so also you must give grace to others. And above all these things, put on love. So, well, Rod, you made fun of love a little bit earlier. And now here it is. You know, Paul's saying just love each other. But that's not what Paul is saying. We have such a sentimental idea about love. In our world, even in the church, even in the church, we have a sentimental idea about love. But love is a self-sacrificing commitment to another person for their good. That's the word that Paul is using here. Self-sacrificing commitment to another person for that person's good. What really will benefit that person. And love is a gritty thing. Love is a difficult thing. Love is tough. Love sent Jesus Christ to the cross. Now, it takes a real tough man to love like Jesus loved. 
Uh, We need to really get rid of a lot of the sentimental, airy-fairy notions of love that we carry around in our minds. That if we love, everything's going to be great. That everything will be fine. That uh, we'll never have struggles. We'll never have problems. And, and, and that's what... No. We love in spite of those things. We love through those things. We love because of those things. And that's why Paul says here, above everything else, put on love. Because what love does, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, perfect means complete. Are total. It's when we have this love for each other that we can come together in this perfect harmony. Now, notice what he doesn't say. It's not perfect unison. Sometimes that's what we think or that's what we assume. That if we really love, then we're all going to think the same. We're all going to be the same. We're all going to act the same. We're all going to dress the same. We're all going to uh, uh, interact the same. We'll say the same things. We'll have the same ideas and so on and so forth. But that's not true. What love does, it takes a bunch of different, uh, sometimes uh, uh, annoying uh, people, puts them together and allows them to create a beautiful harmony. Harmony is not everybody singing the same note. Harmony is when people sing different notes that fit together perfectly. And that's what love does. It takes the different notes that we play in our lives, the different songs that we sing, the different ideas that God gives us, the the different strategies that we have about reaching people for Christ, and so on and so forth, and brings them together And creates a harmony. Makes it sound like they all go together in the first place. That's true in marriages as well. Now how often do do we come together and we expect that once we get married I'm going to find my soulmate. And and, uh, he's going to think exactly the way I think. And that he'll be willing to talk with me for hours and hours and hours on end. Or listen to me hours and hours on end. And we're just going to have a wonderful time. And he'll always buy me flowers for Valentine's Day. And uh, he'll always buy me exactly what I want for Christmas. Even though I don't tell him and he doesn't ask me. He will know exactly. He'll never miss an anniversary. And he'll do all kinds of wonderful things for me uh, every day without me ever asking. He'll clean the house. He'll cook the food. He'll raise the kids. And he'll go out and he'll work. And then you discover that Jesus isn't available. And it just doesn't happen. Just doesn't happen. It never will happen. It never has happened in the history of the earth. Adam and Eve couldn't cut it. Nobody else is. But that's not what love does. Love blends. It brings together. It harmonizes. And that's why we need to embrace it. And it's this zealous, self-sacrificing commitment. And along with this love, we need to let the peace of Christ, the sense of well-being, the sense of God's presence, let that rule in our hearts. Let that be a guide. It is an appropriate guide in your life to be looking for peace about the decisions that you make. And if you do not have the peace of Christ in your heart, then it's probably not the right decision. And you need to wait and you need to seek it out. And so you need to let this peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. 
We'll come back to Thanksgiving here in just a moment. But Thanksgiving is so, so important. There's so few people in this world that are thankful. If you think about it, the next time you're riding on the bus, find out how many people thank the driver. Listen, uh, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody but my wife and I thank our bus driver. Or the taxi driver. Uh, or the person serving you at the counter, or so on and so forth. Listen this week to how seldom people are thankful. And then start to do the other thing. Put it on. Be thankful. Choose to be thankful. And he says, now let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so the key thing is we're putting all of these things on. We let the the peace of Christ rule in us and the word of Christ dwell in us. That's why we have to come together in the church. We need each other because we need the word of Christ. And you will not just get the word of Christ on your own. Personal Bible study is good. But you need to be coming together with other Christians because we're called to teach each other and admonish each other. That means to challenge each other, by the way. And so if you don't have somebody that will challenge you, uh, you're not doing exactly what God wants you to do. We need to challenge each other. I'm so thankful at City Temple that we're building up a culture where people are not afraid to challenge me as the minister. And I've encouraged that. doesn't mean I always like it, but I encourage it. Because we're better because of it. So if we let the Word of Christ dwell in us, we're reading the Scriptures, we're hearing the Word preached, we're singing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is one of the greatest ways for the Word of Christ to dwell in us. And that's why it's so important to sing good quality songs like you do here. And all of these things, the, the Word of Christ just works in us And it becomes even more natural for us to put on all the other things that Paul has been talking about here. And as we do this, we need to do it again with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. Here you got thanksgiving a second time. And then he says, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, whenever the Bible repeats something three times in a row, it means it's really, really, really important. So this whole issue of thanksgiving is so very important. It is one of the things that will set us apart as Christians from most other people in the world. Is this discipline about giving thanks, giving thanks, giving thanks, giving thanks, thanking people, thanking God. And it also creates joy in us. Because as you're, you're giving thanks, it causes you to focus on the good and the beneficial, that which is praiseworthy. And how you focus determines whether or not you will have joy. And so thanksgiving can create joy in us. And so God emphasizes it time after time after time. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. It orients us in the right direction. It orients us in God's direction. And so on and so forth. And then Paul here in this last sentence gives us really the coup de grace, if you will. Uh, the, the, the high point of, of what he's saying here in this passage. And he says, whatever you do, 
Whatever you do, no matter where you are, whether you're on your own, whether you're in church, whether you're at work, whether you're on the bus, on the tube, driving your car, playing rugby, whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whatever, uh, what, what, whatever you do, in word or in deed, in what you say or how you choose. Now notice how this connects back up to what Paul started out this passage with. How we orient our minds and our wills. Our words proceed from our minds, from what we're thinking, what's up there. Our deeds proceed from our choices, what we choose, our wills. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do something in someone's name means that you're seeking to represent that person perfectly. And it also means that you have the authority to represent that person. You know, I don't have the authority to do anything in the name of the queen. She hasn't given me that authority. I'm really disappointed. I've been here for almost 12 years. I've never once been invited for tea. Um, I, I, I know most of you have. Maybe the next time you're there, if you could put in a good word for me, tell them that there's this lonely colonialist that really would like a lovely cup of tea with the queen, really admires the queen, and doesn't agree with you know the guys 300 years or so ago that you know the queen should be shot or anything like that. Uh, so tell her there's no threat from me, and I'm I'm her friend when you see her. But I have no authority to do anything in her name. If I walked on the street and I walked up to one of the city of London police officers and I said. In the name of the Queen, I command you to part the street. You just say, what? Do you need a hospital? You know, it doesn't happen there. Only people who have authority can do something in the name. Only people who are properly representative can do something in someone else's name. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you represent Christ. You represent Jesus to people. So whatever you do, whatever you say, whatever you choose, do it all in the authority of Jesus, fully representing Jesus. In the authority of Jesus, fully representing Jesus. People need to see Jesus in you. They desperately need to see Jesus in you. So whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all. All. Representing Jesus to other people. And the way we do it, It's simply what Paul has been telling us all along. Understanding who you are in Christ. You are God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved. And orienting yourself fully toward God. If that is the orientation of your life, 
You will naturally think his thoughts. You will naturally make his choices. And in the fullness of that, then putting on all of these things so that when people see you, they're seeing Jesus. As you do that, and that is God's call for you every single day of your life, as you do that, the world will change. One person at a time, one situation at a time, the world will change. That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do love you. We honor you. We adore you. And we thank you. Father, I pray that you would connect us with even one thing in this list today. Even one thing that you're calling us to do. And let us choose that thing. As we orient ourselves toward you perfectly, fully, freely, in Christ Jesus our Lord. We love you, praise you, and honor you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.